to conclude Jesus' remarks on righteousness in Matthew 5, paving the way for us to conclude the Sermon on the Mount, hopefully, before Christmas. Most of you know me better than that, but we're going to try. It's all depending on how you do things. What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you leave out and what do you include? We'll leave out the outline. Every message on Matthew, we've given you the outline of this portion we're in. We're in Matthew 5, around verse 32 this morning. We'll talk about something light, something, you know, not too difficult for everybody. We'll, we'll get into divorce in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 31. And uh, we'll conclude, if the Lord provides, with uh, verse 48. Now, it was said, he says, whoever releases his wife, the word for divorce is not a technical term like we have. The word divorce means people were married and they terminated marriage. Unless you use it figuratively, we could use divorce in other ways. But the 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 Greek of the first century Roman world just says release because it's not a technical word for a technical event. They use a broad word, release. And it's, um, it's apo luce. Apo is a part. It's a preposition, generally some sort of a partness. And luo is to loose or release. You would luo your sandals. Loose, loosen your, so to release a part or to loosen a part. That's the etymology of it. it means release. And that's the language for divorce. Whoever releases his wife, he must give to her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus, throughout this portion of Matthew 5, will quote the Old Testament and then give his interpretation of it. Sometimes he quotes the Old Testament and the rabbinic additions, and he'll give the interpretation of the biblical thing and then correct the misapprehension, the, mis, the misunderstanding of the addition. He contradicts the rabbis a lot in this passage. But this is the question of divorce. And I hope everybody understands the biblical doctrine, the biblical doctrine of divorce. This is not the Roseland doctrine of divorce. I'm just hiding behind the Bible like every wise pastor that this is what God's word says and we should all choose right now in our lives to commit to God's ethic on this topic. God's ethic. What is his view of divorce? You can read about it in Matthew 5, or Matthew chapter 19, around verses 1 through 5, or in this passage in Matthew. It's, it's really straightforward, and it's cut and dried, and it's better not to marry than to marry badly because of how permanent God portrays it to be. So, you heard it said in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, you could do a divorce. Now, but I'm saying to you, not a contradiction, by the way, of what Moses wrote and what God inspired Moses to write in Deuteronomy 24. There's no contradiction when he says, but. He's always saying, but, and in this case, it means, and let me further explain uh, the way to understand this. So it's not, it's, understand, it's just not contradictory, even though in your cursory English reading, you might feel like it's contradictory. It really isn't. He says, but I'm saying to you that whoever releases, same word, which we would translate divorce, whoever releases his wife except for a logos of porneia, except for a matter, a word of 
fornication, meaning sex that is illicit between people that are not married to one another. He poieo, he makes her commit adultery, which is a strange suggestion to make someone commit adultery. How does he make her? Well, she has to, to, to find a living. She has to live in their culture. In that day, she had to go find a place to live. She's got to be in someone's house. That's the idea. So she's going to remarry. He makes her commit adultery. And whoever should marry a woman who has been released, a woman who's been released, who marries her, he commits adultery. He moikaos. Would y'all like to go through an exhaustive examination in all the tense, voice, and mood of all the verbs, all the, all the, the case, number, and gender of all the nouns and adjectives? Would you like to go through an exhaustive word-for-word -word examination of Matthew chapter 5, verse 32? I know that you do. I know that you would like to do that. But I think we should save it for a supplement. If you want to work through those things and see if it really means that, what we just read in the Greek, then maybe we'll make a supplement. But today, I want us to move on. In verse 36, he says, in verse 33, he says uh, about vows. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your kids can make your hair turn white. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. Most of us read this before we read anything about vows in the Levitical code or in the Old Testament, the way God regulated offering vows to God. Basically what God said is if you're going to do the cultural practice of making vows to your deity, to God, then you will keep them. You don't pretend like I'm uh, just someone for you in the emotional moment of your fervor. If you make a vow, you keep it. That's, that's what he told them. But Jesus says, don't even do this. Just say yes or no. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these of evil. Okay. The ancients were told in the Mosaic law, you will not swear falsely, which is part of the Ten Commandments. Tell the truth, but keep your oath to the Lord. So if you swear falsely, you swear, but then you don't fulfill it. This really goes hand in hand with marriage and divorce, which is the prior context I want to ask you an interesting question culturally. What is a promise ring? What's a promise ring? It is a man giving a woman a ring. I mean, I understand that's, I'm talking about that. I don't know what else they could do, but the, the one I'm talking about is a man giving a woman a ring where he's saying, I will marry you. And you're saying, if you take it, that you'll marry me. And it's, it's called a promise ring because the person is, watch this promising. So I ask you, what is an engagement ring if you have a promise ring? What is that? It's a more expensive promise ring? Is that what is that? <laughs> it didn't have the scratch to pull, to, to pop for a diamond, so I got something a little less, and then we upgraded, right? And what's an engagement? What is 
and engagement. I'm building something by asking these questions. What's an engagement? Yeah, it's, it's both parties are saying, absolutely, we will do this. Now, there's a proper way for a woman to respond to a man's proposal to engage, I believe, in our culture. She's first got to cover her face. Everybody aware? You have to. This is the universal signal of yes. <laughs> See, it's our culture. It's cultural. It's fantastic. If, if a man proposes to you, ladies, and you haven't been married, a man offers to marry you, you want to marry him, I dare you not to do that. I dare you not to come. <laughs> All right. But what's an engagement? It's, it's the commitment to marry. It's the man. What does he say if he's smart? On bended knee, he says, I will love you every day of your life. I want to be your husband. I want you to be my wife. I want our lives to be together. And I will do this. And he commits himself to it. All right. So what's a wedding? What is, what is a wedding? We get up here. We've done a couple here. I've done dozens of weddings, but only a couple here. We get, we get up there and we say, I will. Yes, I will. And then we even say more, this is what I will do. This is what I will do. They say it. They, they commit. What is the difference between what these people are saying at a wedding and what they say at their engagement? I'm sorry? There's, I think they're saying in front of the Lord always. He's always around. Just because I'm standing here doesn't mean the Lord's here. There's, no, there's nothing sacred about this space except its representation of our faith in Christ to a world that more and more needs that representation, right? But no, it, it isn't sacred because they say it to me or in my presence. The marriage, listen, the marriage, not the wedding, the marriage begins with the commitment of the two people before God that they're going to do this. And you don't have to do it in a church. It's very legitimate to marry at the JP. It's a legitimate, actual marriage. And it's not a secular marriage. God's marriage institution is God's. Understand what I'm saying. It doesn't, the Puritans didn't even do it in churches. The, the, this wasn't done early in the colonies here in New England in the church because they thought this was a, this was a, a matter of, of law more than, more than church practice. The Bible doesn't tell us how to do a marriage. Ever seen a pastor hold a, a Bible at a wedding? Yeah, we're always holding Bibles. You know what we have in there? We have Ephesians 5 marked, and then we have little short printed, our message that we're going to preach that we haven't memorized because we're not that sharp. We have, it, we have it like printed small in our Bible, and we, have it, and we use our Bible to cover up our notes. You don't want me standing there. We do, we do. You don't want me standing there at your wedding with my little note cards. I once saw a wedding guy pulled an iPad out. It was beautiful, it was beautiful. We want our leather-bound Bible. Cows have to die, okay, for us to do a wedding. We have to have a leather-bound Bible. But I'm just saying, like, what is a marriage? What is it? At bottom, if you go back to Genesis 2, it's two people before God saying, this is what we'll do. It's their covenant, their commitment to God and to one another to do this. It's not the wedding. It's not that they had witnesses, although we like we, the witness part. That's, to me, the most important part of the wedding, besides the people saying they'll do it, is the witnesses saying we are, are witnesses to God's illustration of marriage, and we, we will be 
encouraged by it, and we will hold it accountable in our community of, of faith and fellowship and family. We're going we're gonna to see this through with you. That's what the family's saying. It's beautiful. But what is, what is a marriage? A marriage is the commitment of the two people before God to be married. It isn't that we're compatible. It isn't that we feel good when we're together. It isn't sex. It isn't all the things that go with it. It is the covenant commitment to the, to the institution to, with one another before God. That's what makes a marriage. And that's why I ask you, what is a promise ring? What's an engagement? What is a you and me, we're gonna go together? What is the one another us thing that we make when we build a relationship and we commit no one else but you and, when, and in a boyfriend-girlfriend thing, nobody else but you and nobody else but me until we don't feel like it anymore, which is how our culture thinks marriage is. Now, marriage is the covenant bond between man and woman before God that they voluntarily enter into. And so th- let me ask you, if we back out of this a little bit, okay, so I believe in the vows and the ceremony. I believe in doing that publicly. But how do you have integrity as a person of your word and say, I'll do this for life at the engagement conversation? And then a week before the, the wedding, and I'm not talking about anybody specific. I know this has happened to people. You say, I don't really want to do this. And since we haven't signed any papers and there's no name changes, we're, we're free and clear. How do you do this with integrity? You can't say, I'm going to do this for life. I commit myself. And she says, I commit myself in our engagement as we do in our silly culture. And then at the wedding say, okay, well, we didn't quite make it to the altar and have any integrity because you said you would. And at the altar, you say you will. That's what a marriage is. It's the commitment to do it. You see what I mean? So what's wrong with us? We don't keep our commitments as a people. We don't do what we said we'll do. Well, you don't understand. No, we understand. You've got a knife twisting in your guts. It's horrible. It's a hard thing that you've got to deal with this thorn in the flesh. And God's power is greater than your weakness. But when your weakness, he can demonstrate his strength. And maybe the cross you're called to bear is a very painful relationship. See, but if you and I back off of what marriage is before God of the two people covenanted before him to one another, if we back off of what marriage is, it's that commitment, then we really don't have anything. There's cohab. We live in the same house. We know what each other's breath smells like when we wake up. You know, those are the things of marriage, right? Uh, Charlie Pride said, you got to kiss an angel good morning, right? He was right. We're supposed to, we're supposed to get flowers, men, we're supposed to love them. We're supposed to be romantic. We're supposed to keep things fresh. We're supposed to use and figure out what that woman is like and what she needs and what she wants. And, and you're supposed to do that, ladies, toward your husband and learn and develop and build and seek the better for the other and disregard yourself. And that's Ephesians 5 and, and John 13, love one another as I've loved you and self-sacrificially concern yourselves for one another. And, and we can talk about what the Bible describes as a good, wonderful, blessed Christian marriage. But if, even if you don't have all of those things that you're supposed to have because you do your job and he doesn't do his job or he does his job and she doesn't do her job, even if you don't have what we call a good Christian marriage, you can be God's man in the situation. You can be God's woman in the circumstance. Read 1 Corinthians 7. You will sanctify the brokenness by your presence and who knows what God will do. 
Many of your relationships, by the way, many of your marriages are how God brought one or two of you to Christ. I know several of your stories that unbeliever, unbeliever, believer, eventually believer in the marriage. I know of other stories where believer, unbeliever, likes believer. Believer says, figure out Jesus first. That's what, what I'm about. Okay, well, we'll see. And then God used that to get a hold of the person, now married to believers. This happens all the time. What never happens is I'm um, a leopard and this giraffe over here has spots, so it's going to work. If we get enough PT in, if we do enough of the things, I'll eventually get him or her trained into being a leopard with me. That ain't going to happen. It just, it's, it's never going to happen. But what, what if you find yourself married as a leopard if you're married to a giraffe? Well, don't hunt the giraffe. <laughs> but you have to deal with it. It's hard. <clears throat> While we're here, and I'm trying to encourage you to bear witness with those in your culture around you about what marriage is, it's God's institution, it's not a man, it's not a, an evolutionary developed uh, sociological construct for the, for the biological benefit of um, of bags of protoplasm who have uh, a momentary uh, lapse in judgment and an emotional sexual uh, uh, spark. That's not, what, that's not what marriage is. It's God's institution. And it's amazing how it grows and how it grows us and how it'll develop you. But in Matthew 19, I just want you to hear how certain I am from the Lord Jesus that marriage is designed to be lifelong. And that means that at some point you can release your, be released from it in death. When the disciples asked, when the, when the Pharisees came to Jesus, in Matthew 19, Jesus had finished these words. He went into Galilee, and in verse, um, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce? What do you think the word is? Release. It's that same, they, they use it technically, but it, it's a general word. To release his wife for any reason at all. Now, what's happening culturally? There's the, the liberals and the, the conservatives. Did you know that that's always been going on? So the Shammai people think that um, only for uh, uh, adultery. And the Hillel people think that it's if you um, burn the toast. He can say, oh, burn toast, you're out. And, um, and so the Shammai is conservative, Hillel is liberal, and so on that topic. And so they're trying to argue this. The rabbis are like, you know, going to him to see what he says about it. And Jesus says, um, you're reading the wrong book. You're arguing from your rabbinical reasonings about Deuteronomy 24. But he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 126. He said, you're in Deuteronomy. Scroll back to Genesis. That's where to go on this question of what marriage is. And for this reason, Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother. A word, atzav, to leave his father and mother could be abandoned, forsake. And they didn't forsake their parents, but compared to the, the union of a husband and wife, moms and dads of kids that are going to be grown and marry off, you really want them to marry off. You want them to form that bond. You want them to actually be married. He'd be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. Now, every text is going to be interpreted. And there's a way people will squint their eyes and slant and, and arrange to interpret this 
to mean something that it doesn't mean. They'll try to find a way to say, but he emotionally abandoned me. And so since I don't feel love, find a way to justify what Jesus just said you can't possibly justify. Genesis 1 tells you the design. Genesis 2 clarifies that design. Male and female in God's image. He's made first. She's his helpmate. She's designed to be his counterpart. His, his opposite number is really what the Hebrew says in Azer Konegdo. And so when God joins them together, they become one flesh. And Jesus says, you're supposed to maintain that idea of one fleshness so you really can't separate. Whom God joined together, let no one separate. So the way I validate my interpretation that this is a straightforward reading, that marriage is permanent in, God, in God's design, and we're supposed to see it as permanent, there is such a thing as divorce. I mean, he acknowledges divorce, but he says that he doesn't want you to divorce, but there is such a thing, but he's designed it to be permanent. So Jesus, and this is reasoning from design all the time. Jesus goes back to the, hey, what'd we, what'd we do in creation? What's the design? Just so we're sure that I've correctly interpreted what Jesus means, that this is locked down. You are stuck. Young people, I'm talking to the people that are not married. Please lend me your ears. I don't want to bury you. <laughs> Borrowing from Julius Caesar. All right, so please listen. If you do this to yourself, it's done. It's done, and God knows that sometimes people in a hard marriage will pray for death, usually the death of the other. But, but in a tough situation, that's your out. It's really what God says. And, and I know you're going to propose to me the alternative suggestions like adultery. Well, we could talk about adultery, Matthew 5. We could talk about the question of remarriage after adultery too. But you're not supposed to ask about the exceptions when you're talking about the design. You're supposed to say, what's the design? See, what we want to do is go right to the application and ask the question, am I right or wrong? I made these decisions. I, I, I'm not talking about your past decisions. I'm talking about what is the design? And what we have to understand, young people, is that God designed this to be able to withstand your differences. He designed it to be able to, to, to weather the storm. And there are broken people that should be executed for their wicked behavior. There are, and they aren't in our culture, and that's a problem. That is a problem that I, on the, on the death do you part thing. It doesn't say until prison do you part. You might be married to a person that should be in, in, incarcerated for their abuse of you, but that doesn't mean you're divorced, not biblically. I mean, I know that sounds radical, but this is the Bible. Understand the design. The design is one man, one woman for life, and life is life. When, the, when you're, the person dies, you're not married to them anymore. They're not your spouse in heaven. That's not a thing. I know we feel that way, a lot of people, and I can't imagine not being married, understand. But the Bible says we're not given in marriage. But anyway, in Matthew 19, back to the text, I know I've interpreted Jesus to say back to design, it's permanent for life because of what he says next in training the disciples. The, the mother lion takes the young lions out and teaches them to kill. And we can watch them do this. This is their life's livelihood. The lionesses go and hunt, and they show the other lions how to do it. And they, they might get a, an easy target and show them and do a team hunt. And eventually, the lions grow up, and they can survive because they've learned to kill. This is the teacher training his disciples to think in terms of design about some of the toughest stuff in life. 
And beloved, you can, you can think like Jesus does about this, and so can I, because the disciples, the young lions, come up to him and say, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? I'm not to the young lions yet. They, they throw Deuteronomy 24 back at Genesis 2. They say, well, I see a contradiction. One flesh, Jesus, you say, but Moses says a certificate of divorce. So Moses disagrees with Moses. And Jesus says, ah, I'm glad you asked because there is a historical circumstance going on in the development of the, of the Torah. Genesis is not the same as Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy comes later. And so he says, and it doesn't contradict Genesis, he says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. Okay, the exception later on in Deuteronomy is because the offended party has hardness of heart. Now, what does that mean? How do we interpret hardness of heart? Well, there have been a lot of theories about this. Hardness can be um, insensitivity because of fat. It can be insensitivity from nerve damage due to scar tissue. Um, the word sclerosis comes from the Greek word for hardness here. Hardness of heart, cardiosclerosis, um, has nothing to do with hardening arteries. Uh, I, I'm certain. But I know we talk about that. You men were permitted to divorce your wives. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 24, 24.1. He sends her away. She would never beggar herself and put herself into a starvation situation or a prostitution situation in Deuteronomy days by, oh, I don't like him. She would figure it out and survive and stay there. But, but understand, he says, you, um, he lets you divorce your wives for your hardness of heart. And then he interprets what Deuteronomy 24 is for. What is the provision? What's the exception? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, except for sex between two people that are not married. In other words, an adultery. Porneia and marriage is adultery. Except for adultery and marries another woman, he commits adultery. This is a really consistent thing Jesus says in the pen of Matthew. I believe what Matthew says. So who is my message for? Who am I talking to? Some of you are offended. I don't want you to be offended. I want you to, to humble yourself before God and say, God, you be God and I won't be. I'm not. You say what you think and I'll submit to you and your institutions. But this is really applicable to people that are not married. Listen to me. If you're not married, you may be the one person that's still listening to me that's not married. Others of you are in the elevator music in your head. It's after 12. Luby's is going to fill up. We won't get to the cafeteria and get a space in line. Y'all even know what Luby's is, so I know you're worried about it. In the city, in Texas, there's a cafeteria. And everybody's racing to Luby's. Pastor gets out. 11.45, you get lunch early. Anyway, uh, those of you who are still listening to me and you're young, I'm talking to you. Those of you who have a word for young people who haven't been married, you need to figure out this message and turn around and make it your own and be ready to preach it, brothers and sisters. You need to own this and help them with it because young people are dumb. I mean, in my case, not, not all of you young people, but, but I, I was not uh, as aware of things when I was 25 as I am at 45, 47. I didn't really know back then what I know now. I know that's hard to imagine if you're, you know, if you're 13 or 15 or 20 that 
we grow and know things more and better as we get older, right? Listen, listen, the young people don't know and their culture, they're leaning on it. They can't help it. It's the air they're breathing. They're the fish swimming in the culture and they don't even know it's wet. Everybody thinks that marriage is romance, is compatibility, is good experiences, is feeling loved, is feeling valued, is all the benefits that should attend a good marriage. They think that's what marriage is. And nobody knows that marriage is the commitment to the institution between God and and the two people. Nobody knows this unless they're told. Unless they, hey, could you pull those headphones out for a second? I know that you're involved in all the cultural stuff that helps you not think about the fact that you're dying a little bit every day, but let's actually live our lives for Jesus and learn something. You need to learn to tell people if you've already lived your life on this issue and you've already made your decision and you've already faced the consequences of what you got, like in the Yankee swap, we all picked the presents based on the package and you didn't know what you were getting until you opened it. And uh-oh, I know how I'm serving the Lord for the next 40 years because I found out. Now, understand, we all understand buyer's remorse. You have to look closely at what you're doing and not be mystical and say, I think God is putting us together because we chew the same type of gum. It must be meant to be. Don't get mystical. We both like the same HGTV shows. It must be written in the stars. Don't do this. Ask the question, what is marriage? I mean, it's boring for some of you, but think, what does God think marriage is and what does he want me to do with my life? What's likely to happen if I get married? Do you know what's likely to happen? You're likely to have kids. Not everybody does, but it's liable that you will. Not everybody has children and that's not the point. What will you do if you take on that responsibility of having children? What would your life be like? What kind of adult do you have to be to disciple a child? To disregard yourself and your feelings so that you can actually deal maturely with, the, with that child? How, what kind of, what, grows us up, doesn't it? And it's amazing how young people are like, oh, let's get married. Yeah, go, go do that. But here it comes, reality sets in and and life isn't about how I feel. Life is about what God gives me as a stewardship. So, okay, so so young people, I'm gonna make a permanent decision. Pastor Dave says, don't consult the magic eight ball. Should I marry her? Likely not. Oh, good, not that one, right? (laughs) Don't ask mystical questions. Engage with biblical wisdom and ask, what do I need and how will I know? You need somebody you can trust. How do you know you can trust this person? And I'm not talking about devious little games that drama queens play to test people's love. I don't mean that. I mean, how will you know you have a person of integrity that their yes is yes and their no is no? How will you know? How will you know? You'll have to watch. You have to watch dispassionately, unemotionally, and without your finger on the scale. I really like how he looks, so I'm going to try to squint my eyes and make it be that he's a man of integrity. If he's not a man of integrity, he's not. And you're not going to turn that giraffe into a leopard. So you look. So you watch. You know what else you do? This is going to be crazy. You find people older than you that are wiser than you, and you embrace the fact that they are both older and wiser. I wish someone had told me this. I didn't know this. Don't look at my mother 
when I say something like that, all right? You find older and wiser people and you crave, you grab them and you say, here's what I'm thinking, what do you think? Ask them to weigh in. This is what I'm dealing with. I'm about to make the biggest decision that will determine for the most, the, the, the biggest decision of my life after trusting in Christ, how my life is gonna go. And we all make it for emotional and mystical reasons. And nobody tends to think this is a wise choice based on what God has told me and my stewardship responsibility of volition and the, and the things he's gonna give me. Bring wisdom to it. Ask your parents if they're people of integrity and wisdom. If they're not people of integrity and wisdom, honor them and keep biblical counsel with your heavenly father. But seek out wise believers who can weigh in with you and help you think things through because it turns out you're going to, at 20 to 25 or 30, make the, the decision that will determine the next 50 years of your life and you don't know what you're getting. And you don't have to agree with the people's wisdom and advice. You don't have to say, well, he said yes and he said no. And you've got, but you've got more perspective. You've got more, as we say in the military, intelligence on the matter. You've got more to look at. And I didn't say this foolproofs your decision. I didn't say everybody's green light. Everybody says, yeah, it's good to go. And so I marry and then he's bad or she doesn't work out or she's a, she's a, a, a person of no integrity, a gomer. And Hosea was told by God to go marry gomer. In such a case, you serve God as you are in the situation to please him, to honor him, to glorify him. I didn't say you have to be a punching bag. In our country, assault is, a, 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 is, a, is an offense that criminal justice will, will and should deal with. It is easy in our culture. If you're under physical torture or pressure, it's easy to get a restraining order and it is easy to get police protection and it's easy to get people around you, especially a church family who can tell you. But I can't find the place in the Bible that says, well, you know, divorce if you do this or that. Divorce over adultery because it breaks the marriage. And so, tell your young people, don't get emotional. Don't make emotional commitments before you have vetted someone's character. Look closely at what you're dealing with. We can fall for anybody. We can fall, oh, no, I've got this connection. Yeah, that's how we're made. We connect. It happens. Oh, I just can't help it. You can help it. You can be commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, soul, with all your strength. You can be commanded not to love the world or the things in the world. Yes, you can help it. Worst thing Elvis ever said. You can help it. Let's fall in love with our Savior and what, what he wants for us. And please, if you're, if you're out of this phase of life where you've made this decision, understand you need to be a coach for the younger people. They don't know what they're getting into, they can't. That's the nature of life. But you can shed some wisdom into their lives and God is gracious. Even if you marry a thorn in the flesh, his grace is sufficient for you. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us from our sins, for the challenge of Christian marriage and marriage as Christians when we find ourselves, uh, in some cases, believers married to non-believers. Father, the, the many challenges of this life are only met by your spirit working through your word as we trust you. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit and the challenge and the hardships before us are for your glory as we trust you. Father, if there's anyone in the hearing of my voice who hasn't trusted in Christ as Savior, 
Marriage is important, but it is nothing compared to an eternal relationship with you. I pray you'd make the gospel message clear in the lives of our family, our friends, our loved ones, and those in our hearing that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves from our sins, but trust in Jesus who did it all, who paid for our sins at the cross as we celebrated. Fathers, we go forward. Let us be people in fellowship with you, in communion with you, and therefore with one another as we insist on your word, on your truth, on your grace. And we love you with our choices. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. amen.